funerals. They're very sad occasion. But can funerals be sad for the one who goes to heaven? That is the question. A few days ago in Italy, they celebrate this day of the dead. Catholic Church uh, goes to family graves to offer prayers for the deceased. And through those prayers, hopefully get them out of purgatory. And the mass is celebrated, which is not at all a joyful occasion. There was an early church father called Chrysostom who deplored, in fact, back then, the ostentatious public lamentations that were made by Christians at Christians' funerals. He says this, When I behold the wailings in public places, the groaning over those who have departed this life, the howling and all the other unseemly behavior, I am ashamed before the pagans. Talking about a Christian funeral. The pagan sees it, and before all who for this reason laugh us to scorn. He was complaining for this conduct at Christian funeral because that behavior was nullifying the teaching of the resurrection. In fact, it was encouraging the pagans to continue in unbelief. Because apparently to be a Christian who has the certainty to go to heaven, it didn't make much difference as he goes through death. What could be more unseemly, he continues then, for a person who professes to possess eternal life, to, have tear, to tear his hair, shriek aesthetically in the presence of death, those really are worthy of being lamented. In fact, we should fear and tremble at the prospect of death and no faith at all in the resurrection. That's what you are saying. And he drives his point home by saying, May God grant that you all depart this life unwailed with joy. This morning we enter the drama of death, the loss of a friend or a family, the drama of tears, the grief and hopelessness that Jesus Christ entered into. And yet in the midst of all that, he declares in our text, I am the resurrection and the life. He has come to bring us hope in the midst of grief. Uh, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. We are almost at the final Passover. This is the last and climactic miracle that Jesus will do before now he secedes from the public ministry to lead a time of teaching with the disciples. The first part of the Gospel, in fact, is about to end with this very miracle. This, the book of signs, the book of seven miracles... And this is the last part now of the ministry of Jesus. And after that, there is no more miracles. No more startling demonstration of being, in fact, the Messiah. There's nothing greater that is needed now than raising someone from the dead. Now, Jesus already in his ministry had raised somebody from the dead. If you go to the other gospel, you see Jairus' daughter who had been raised from the dead. However, this episode and what we will see next Sunday with the anointing, are to be seen together as a prophecy for what is about to come. That Jesus Christ himself will die and be raised from the dead. And he will be anointed next time. And here he will raise Lazarus as foreshadowing his own resurrection. He's been risen will be the demonstration of truly being the Messiah, the Son of God. So Lazarus... Coming back out of the grave symbolizes for us Jesus later being raised from the dead. 
This is the final exclamation point to what we saw week after week, sign after sign, miracle after miracle. Nothing else is needed after that. And their goal, what was the goal of the miracle, remember, is to bring you to faith so that they may believe. However, this faith here is a resurrection faith that ultimately the defeat of death, the being risen from the dead in Christ can be now trusted by you. Verse 26 in our text says, if you believe in Jesus, you will never die. The death for the believer does not have the last words. That in fact, there is a resurrection power already living in the one who has trusted in Christ. He has already passed from death into life. This resurrection it indeed really happened. Multiple witnesses have seen Lazarus coming out of the grave. And to, together with this miracle, there is also the, as we saw last time, the growth of opposition from the religious leaders. The plot to kill Jesus escalating. And after that, Jesus withdraws. After this great miracle, he will withdraw from public ministry and will begin with this more intimate dialogue with the 12 disciples, particularly the 11. And that will start the second part of the Gospel of John, the book of the upper room discourses or the exaltation of Christ. So Lazarus is the main character here. Sixth time he, he appears in our text. Even in his name, Lazarus means God rules without help, which ironically is exactly what God will do. He will have this sovereignty over, over Lazarus without the need of human help raising him from the dead. That is what's about to happen. And what is, what is happening in this story? Essentially this. That in the midst of delays, in the midst of death, in the midst of grief, Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. And why does he do that? So that our faith in Christ because of that sign may give glory to God. That is the ultimate purpose. But everything rotates around death. So if you have your outline, we, we begin to look at the cause of death outlined for us in our text. Why is death a thing? Verse 1 to 16 tells us that sin has brought death into the world. That the fall of Adam has brought death. And death doesn't make any distinction. Even our most loved one must die. However, there's something interesting in this uh, first 16 verses that Jesus waits in the face of death. But his delay, what seems to be a delay, is actually for the glory of God. First thing we notice there in the first six verses is that the fall doesn't make distinction. Even Jesus' friend is about to die, Lazarus. Everything rotates around Lazarus here and next Sunday. He becomes actually famous for what's about to happen to him. He's sick here. And the, he's also commented in verses 1 and 2 as the brother of Martha and Mary. Now Mary here is not the mother of Jesus, but Mary of Bethany. This is a small town two miles northeast of Jerusalem. Jesus, at the last year of his ministry here, spends a lot of time in Bethany because it's very close to the temple in Jerusalem. And Mary is the one, verse 2 tells us, who anointed Jesus. We'll see that next chapter. However, the fact that it, this comment comes before the next chapter has made some think that this is referring to the previous anointing that happens in Galilee and is recorded in Luke and therefore, there might be two anointing taking place. And uh, 
Whatever the case, this, uh, this anointing it involves a friend of Jesus. Mary, brother, Lazarus is sick. This is a, there's an intimate connection between Jesus and the person who is about to die. And so G the, 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 the sisters, Mary and Martha, sends a message to their friend Jesus. They expect him to come and save his friend from death. That's what you would expect. It says, Lord, the one you love is sick. Your good friend Lazarus, toward which you have an affectionate consideration, is very sick to the point of death. He's still alive at this point. And Jesus has healed so many people that did not know Jesus. Surely he will heal this one who is his best friend, wouldn't he? Just like in the healing of the blind, now Jesus gives a comment for us there in verse 4. The true purpose of the miracle is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This sickness is not unto death. It doesn't lead to death. It is not fatal. It will not be the final result. Now, this doesn't exclude the possibility of death. But it shows that there's something greater that this sickness will accomplish. I think about uh, Nietzsche who said once, he's a philosopher, he said, God is dead. And even if you take his claim as a fact, then you look at Nietzsche's life, he, he died. And instead, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. That is the type of claim that shows how the burden of proof is on the one who makes them. On, on the fact that unlike Nietzsche who died, God kept his word. And Jesus Christ, yes, he had to die, but he's ultimately alive although he will die yes Lazarus will die he will not remain in death in fact his death and resurrection will bring glory to God the son of God will receive glory through this not just through the reaction of all the countless witness remember Bethany is a village very close to Jerusalem lots of people will witness this and will come to Lazarus to see him next week but also it will bring glory to God because this will all foreshadow what will happen to Christ. Ironically, also this miracle will set in motion the plot to kill Jesus. And that plot, remember what we saw last time, regardless of the wickedness of the religious leaders, bring glory to, to God. There is an overarching glory of God that is at work here. But again, verse 5 is interesting that this is not a stranger. Lazarus is a person that Jesus loved. He loved. He was his friend. He was Lazarus, Martha, Mary. And however, verse 6, there's something strange, puzzling that John wants you to see that doesn't fit in with this. That, that Jesus knows that he's sick and yet he waits two more days. He makes no move to go to them. Not even a healing word on the spot like he did uh, healing some other people in the Gospels, perfect strangers, total foreigners. John wants you to see the odd, how odd this is. Why? It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems, in fact, cruel. In, in, especially in light of the previous verse, this is your friend. Your best friend is dying, and you know, you hear about it, and you still decide to wait. Although you know you're supposed to care, Jesus. However, this theme of delay is intentional. Jesus wants everyone that will witness to this episode to know that Lazarus is dead and that his death is real. And so that the authenticity and the credibility of this miracle will be without question. 
nothing other than the resurrection from the dead. See, our resurrection is not as glorious unless the, the seed first dies and then bears much fruit. What we see here is that just like when Jesus healed the blind man, once again, the human perspective doesn't seem to fit with what the divine perspective is. There are things in our life that are unpleasant, and death is the most unpleasant thing, especially when it comes to a family, a loss of a friend, or a personal sickness, hurt from people. And Jesus' words about it shows us sometimes even our greater losses are what actually becomes the mean through which God works. That God gets the glory from whatever situation. That no matter how hopeless it might get, God can turn it, like here, into an occasion to be magnified as God before all men. Even the silence from God. Even what appears to us as humanly as a delay. Even what appears as, to us as a cruel, not intervening toward the good of a child of God, of a believer. But friend, delay does not mean that God doesn't care or doesn't know. We can trust that God will get the glory through this. That nothing happened without purpose. Now, this is easy to say when everything is nice and well, but what about when it involves me? What about when false priorities betrays you? What about when the blessing is delayed? What about Mary and Martha? I mean, I'm sure they had a great plan to rescue from their worst fears their brother, but it did not work. There was no easy way out for them, even though they were believers. Friends, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you will never get sick or die like anyone else, sometimes even unexpectedly. However, we rely on the aspect and the truth that Jesus knows best and that he's doing it for you as his child. The question is, what brings more glory to God? That is the question. If Jesus loves me, why did he allow this to happen? We often hear people say, what if this would have happened? Then my life would have not have taken this turn and things would have been better. Why this? Why that? But friends, sometimes afflictions are sent to turn us and even our friends to God. Other times to chastise us. But other times, like in this case, none of these reason. Simply that God may be glorified, even through the perils of a faithful believers who faces death. You think about gems. Gems must be polished. No one takes the trouble to polish a common pebbles. In the same way, God sends afflictions, even death to his beloved, not to unbelievers for their good and in his own glory, while the unbeliever is left to himself, even enjoying his life. There's a whole different purpose, friends, that we cannot see and realize, but it's still there. We realize also from the coming verse that Jesus knows how it feels. He is a friend of, of a sick. He will mourn. And the delay wanted to wait two more days was still under the umbrella of what would glorify God the most. The one way or the other, death doesn't have the last words. That is for the believer a comfort that no matter how long we wait, Jesus Christ will intervene. Second thing we notice there in the cause of death is verse 7 to 16. How the fall impacts everything. Even the, the disciples in their mind are completely puzzled. They don't understand and they're afraid. Jesus wants to go to Judea. Let us go back to Judea after the two days have passed. And, and obviously the disciples are frightened. He says, 
They were seeking to kill you and you want to go back there? We saw last time in chapter 10, verse 31, it's this very thing. The disciple think that this is an irresponsible thing for their teacher to go and get killed. They're afraid to die once again. And Jesus, however, in his answer in verses 9 and 10, my hour has come. We saw that in John 9, 4. We will see it again in John 12, 35. The compelling sense of a calling to shine that light. We remember Jesus is that light that shines into the world. And now there are 12 hours of the day. The ministry is still going on. And you still need to work while there is light. That people may believe and leave the darkness. And soon night comes, he warns the disciples. Particularly Judas Iscariot. The hour he will depart to the Father. And when the night comes, people will stumble in the dark and fall. First John 1 says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Jesus, this is what Judas was saying, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That was the dark moment where few days from now, remember our timetable is almost on the Passion Week. Judas Iscariot will go out at night and indeed betraying the Savior, he will stumble forever however notice again his jesus persistent dedication to accomplish his mission 12 hours in the day he must shine the light despite the darkness he has courage here even in the face of the threats of death that we saw from the wolves last time and so we must learn from this commitment determination and courage in the face of death that he has one goal and that goal is that god will be glorified through his death and resurrection and he was not being sidetracked or drawn to despair by things. And all the precautionary measures that he could have taken were not needed. The inevitable was coming, death. So he wanted to remain close to the, to, to the, to the, the plan, to carry the task that the Father assigned us. Because, friends, we have no surety of tomorrow. You can still be confident on this, however. Your life cannot end until these appointed 12 hours have expired. And that is what Jesus is doing here. That is why he is driven by this confidence. Look at also verse 11 to 13. He warns them why he wants to go in the midst of the fire in Jerusalem. Because Lazarus sleeps. Now, this is a way that in the Old Testament often spoke of death. Not as a soul sleep as some say. Like the Jehovah Witness or other cults. No. Believers enter into the eternal rest. That is what Jesus is talking about. It. Lazarus has died. However, the disciples don't get it. They thought it was speaking literally once again. They're, they're failing to grasp what's happening. And they, in fact, are the spiritually asleep in our story. And verse 14 and 15, the disciples are not getting. And Jesus now has to speak plainly. Lazarus is dead. Now, you know how people at funerals often try to describe death in a very euphemistic way he passed away he's with the angels now we don't want to speak directly but now even to avoid the awkwardness uh, jesus has to be pretty frank to his disciples because they don't realize and he, he also comments i was glad that i was not there how can you be glad for the death of a friend unless you are absolutely certain that he's gonna rise from the dead I was glad for your sake so that you might believe. See that? The disciples already had believed in Jesus and yet their faith is in a development stage, constantly growing 
It needs to be expanded and challenged over and over again. Because this delay will force them to recognize this was a sure debt. And therefore, it could be nothing short than a pure miracle from their Savior. That he raised Lazarus from the dead. Ultimately, Jesus Christ himself will be raised from the dead. John MacArthur has this to say about the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would matter. And I want to say Christ is confident of that here. That the, he knows that, and we should remember, that there's no salvation without this resurrection. There's no hope, ultimately, that we can face death because of this capstone of the resurrection. Otherwise, our faith becomes void. The, 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 the resurrection is the divine endorsement of the mission of Christ. The Father is signaling to us that Jesus is indeed the powerful Son of God. He conquers death and reigns as Lord of all. That is not just for the moment that you come to Christ. That is for all your maturing and growing in the faith, just like the disciples. That, they, that, that faith needs to become alive, as will she. We should expect, therefore, this dimension of belief, not just for receiving eternal life at salvation, but even for your daily Christian growth. That as you're a disciple, you're a work in progress, friend. That he calls you to put to the test that faith, the trustworthiness of the, the one you are placing your trust in, the one who has risen from the dead. That you live in the challenges of life with this joy of knowing that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. At times, obviously, our faith will fail. At times, like the disciples, we will misunderstand. Even after coming to Christ, our faith, however, needs to be solidified, strengthened. And there will be trials that will seek to quench your hope. They will seek to cloud your understanding. And friends, only the resurrection of Christ can revive you there. Only the resurrection can bring you in this deeper and deeper knowledge of Christ. In fact, the genuineness of your faith is put on trial to see how you react to these losses. And that is what's going to happen to Mary. That's going to happen to Martha. But even Thomas, look at verse 16. Doubting Thomas. He has no clue what Jesus was talking about. He says, let us go and die with him. Now you got to marry him and Peter later on because they have this face value, courage with their words. However, they know very little. They have very little clue of what's about to happen. And so there's not a backing up with their deeds. It's just a, almost a pessimistic resigning to the, their fate. Let's die. Isn't it interesting? Often, like the disciples, we too are, that we don't get it right. In fact, we become Thomas' two, true twin when, when our unbelief, when we listen to our depressed feelings or misunderstanding, uh, we are driven by bare rational logic about our lives. And we, 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 we don't realize that ultimately it's only what God divinely can do in our situation can actually bring a change. And so we are allergic to embrace sufferings, even death. Yes, we might be physically awake, but still spiritually asleep. The slowness of heart of the disciples, friend, is that Jesus must die for them before they can get the truth of what they claim to believe. And our, our, we cannot try on our own. Our mind even is fallen. Jesus has to do that for us. But they're missing the mark, obviously. Let's go, go to the second point here. In verse 17 to 32. Not just the cause of death, but the consequences of death. 
and you have two grieving sisters, Mary and Martha, and they are called to face the pain caused by the death of Lazarus. But how are they to deal with that pain is the crucial aspect of these verses. They're supposed to actualize or bring to the present their faith in the person of Christ. They have a future hope about the resurrection. But Christ is calling them to put that to the present situation. They're grieving, obviously. They're hopeless because Jesus is not near. Look at verse 17. Now four four days has passed. And four days were one day beyond hope. I know that uh, in uh, Judaism there was this uh, belief that the soul of the person who died will hover over the body for three days But if the fourth day comes, then there was no more hope of resuscitation. By this time, hope for reviving is completely gone. Even through some sort of healing like Jesus did elsewhere in the Gospels. You hear of corpses that come come back to life after dying a few hours later. But think about four days. It's impossible. It cannot be explained anywhere else than through a resurrection. It is indisputable that Lazarus really died so that the power of God that will be displayed will be unquestionable. And now in verse 20, interesting, look at Martha. Martha hears that Jesus is coming and so she leaves the house and comes after Jesus. And this time is she's the one that goes and Mary stays home. Oh, the gospel tells us that a situation where Mary was always at Jesus' feet and Martha was busy with the house. Now the, the, the opposite happens. However, Mary still seems to be the focus because she's mentioned eight times. And indeed, she always wanted to be near Jesus. However, they are grieving because of the death of their beloved brother. And so the, Martha comes to Jesus with a question. Why didn't you come earlier? However, there's a mix of grief and trust in these answers. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters use that word. And this is not a rebuke, but an expression of sorrow with a confidence. But what even now, whatever you ask of God, I know that he will grant it to you. So she she still has faith, but there's a distant faith, obviously. Death has happened. There's nothing that we can do from this point forward, almost, it looks like. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus has to literally tells your, he tells him your brother will rise again and he, he claims that to actually test Martha let's see how Martha will react to this claim uh, he, Martha obviously thinks that he's talking about the future resurrection oh I know that he will rise one day at the last trumpet it's almost like thank you for your word of comfort but that's not gonna deal with my present issue I'll meet him in, the, in heaven someday That's all that Martha can contemplate. Her hope is only in the distance. And that hope is not helpful in the issue at hand. Isn't that the way that we often go through life? That we have this whole set of belief that we claim from Scripture. But then you get through your daily struggles. And that remains completely untouched by that. But the words of Martha here is a strong evidence that indeed there will be a bodily resurrection of believers in the future. There is this last trumpet that indeed all the believers will one day have a glorified body, enjoy the Lord forever in a new glorified state, in a new perfect world. Our body will be raised again. 
This is uh, told to us in the promise, for example, in Daniel 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. That there will be indeed a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. But let's look at verse 25 and 27. Jesus has to bring that paper future uh, hope to the present, to the concrete struggle with death in Mary and Martha's life. And he says, he says this, well, that's not what Jesus had in mind. Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in a book, but in every leaf of springtime. These are the words of Martin Luther. That there is almost, as Jesus is saying, I want you to go from the book to me. I am the resurrection and the life. That is not something distant, far away. This is the first fifth time that Jesus gives us the I am statement. He's not saying that I am able to resurrect. He's saying, I am the resurrection. He claims to be the resurrection from the dead. And it's not just in the future, but now in the present. Martha doesn't need to go in a future, far away, hope for comfort. The hope is standing right in front of her. Jesus Christ. He possesses the ability to cause dead people to stand up. Not physically just, but also spiritually. I mean, this whole story of Lazarus is a perfect illustration of what happens in our conversion. That there's no boast in our will. Conversion must be a passing from death to life. It's not a, a sick man that needs to be made well. It's a dead man that now through the voice of Christ is brought to life. The, the Spirit of God comes to make you alive, enabling you to believe in Christ. And so while you are sinners, you trust in Christ and you now possess life and you already are risen. You already possess this resurrected life. Even in this life. Yes, you will die physically like Lazarus. But something spiritually has started in you that will never end. Not even death can quench it. That you will be free from final death. That is why Jesus is risen for us and our salvation. That is why Jesus raises us from the dead through faith in Christ and in his resurrection. His righteousness is vindicated. His righteousness is now imputed to everyone who will believe in him. Friends, without the resurrection, we will not be able to stand. And he's also the life. I am the resurrection and the life, which means he gives life. He grants eternal life to those who are spiritually dead by faith. They're brought in this eternal fellowship with God. Imagine a never-ending glorious relationship. That you are united in this resurrection. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. And then he asked this question to Martha. Do you believe this? Kind of bringing it home to Martha. There was this movie of this boy that I was watching his father kept asking him through all sort of challenges in life, do you believe that I, that I can do this? Do you believe that I can do this? And that stick to him so much that once it, he grew up and he faced a challenge, someone's random said those very same words and it impacted his hope. Martha's faith is the crucial thing here. It's not so much raising Lazarus. Martha needs to grow in her faith. So do we. And she replies with these beautiful words here. Yes, I believe. I believe. In fact, she gives one of the most complete profession of faith recorded in the entire New Testament. He, she essentially recognizes him as the Messiah, the Son of God. 
and recognizing him home, home, oh, as God. And now, not only Martha, but Mary is invited to this. Mary comes to Jesus and says the same words in verse 32. If you have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, both sisters are expressing the same exact words. However, there's a double dimension with Mary, it seems, because there seems to be so much sadness and hopelessness that ultimately will lead to the grieving reaction of Jesus. But let's, let's camp here for a second. Do you believe this? What Martha and all of us need to realize, friends, is, is that eternal life and the resurrection are not just some distant hope, some paper that do not connect with your life, your losses, your griefs of the here and now. Even the friendships that you hold dear, that you mourn when they are under threat. That's when you need to turn in times of need to the truest, best friends ever. And that is Jesus Christ. You bring the reality of heaven from the future to the present. Sometimes we need, however, our aid, like the women in our story, that yes, we believe, but there's a mistake that we can fall into. That you live as a practical atheist without hope. All along, you have by your side the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. Including hope for your specific situation. That you, you must not go anywhere else for your hope. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Even in dark times of despair, the depression, that Jesus is alive. Even believers need to have a clear view of who Jesus is in their situation. Of what he can do through the power of the resurrection to connect it to your specific situation. But let's go now to the cure of death. We look at the cause of death, the, the consequence of death. Let's look at the cure of death. And the, the last part of our text is the most beautiful, verse 33 to 44. That in the midst of this intense, almost agonizing struggle, that's how we should realize the struggle between Christ and, and Lazarus and death. Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. Jesus, notice, first of all, is moved to have compassion. This happens three times in our text. Verse 33, 35, 38. He doesn't answer now Mary. Matthew Henry has this to say about this difference between the answer of the two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary had them no more, as Martha did. But it appears, by what follows, that what she fell short in words, she made up in tears. She said less than Martha, but wept more. Jesus sees Mary's tears. He sees all the people grieving. And this ignites one of the most graphic depiction of emotions of our saviors recorded in the Bible. Our text says he, he groaned in the spirit. He was deeply moved, almost distressed. Now some say his heart was touched. Sounds like a nice image. However, this word I want you to know actually means something different. You know how horses can snort with anger sometimes, right? This word actually means to fret or painfully, almost involving a rebuke or a stern or charging against someone. Some translation, if you look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, in fact, it renders this word as angry. Jesus was angry, which means this is a strong display of emotion. He sees the afflicted, the shuddered, the deep anger or welled up within him. He's disturbed with indignation, almost irritated. Why? Jesus is approaching this grave with an irreprehensible anger and rage and fury and agitation. 
not over the confusion in the funeral, not because of the request of a miracle. By this time, there's no hope for a miracle. The, the guy has died. The origin of this sentiment must be somewhere else. And that's what B.B. Warfield has very interesting words to say. Jesus essentially is in front of the spectacle of human sorrow. And that sorrow brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death. The violent tyranny and unnaturalness of death. The Son of God is angry for the impact of sin and the fall of Adam upon his own creation. Jesus is contemplating this general misery of the whole human race. And he burns with rage against the oppressor of man, Satan, who has brought death into the world. He's angry against the last enemy, death. He found himself face to face with this manifestation of the tool of the kingdom of evil, Satan. And the next word, he says, he was troubled. There was a profound sight in, in Jesus, an inward turmoil. He's disturbed, unsettled. And now we come to the shortest verse in the Bible. And yet the most meaningful, Jesus wept. Not only was angry, not only was deeply disturbed, but he cannot contain himself anymore. Tears came to his eyes. He's not untouched. He's not apathetic. He shed tears over what he was seeing. Now this is a different word for the same word of Martha, Mary, and all the people at the funeral. They're wailing, but Jesus is more in a quiet grief. That in his full humanity, he could not contain himself. But he's not crying for Lazarus. He knows he's, he's soon to raise him up. He's again grieving over the effect of sin over his beloved friends. That in this fallen world, the influence of Satan realm has broken things. And he has also come to now bring that back in a restoration. He's, he's, he has come to, to restore all things. And then he groans within himself. Again, he's intensely moved. He comes to the tomb. That is the same word of that anger. That there is a fight here, okay? There's a wrestling match between Jesus Christ and death. They're, they're about to have a fight. He's working up his divine power to for, perform the greatest miracle ever. That same scene that he will have himself to go through just a few days from now. To die and being risen from the dead and return to glory. He will die for your sin, but also rise again on the third day, overcoming death. Jesus knows this is coming, and that is the, the sum of the reason why he has all this groaning within himself. He knows the excruciating death and burial and resurrection that awaits him. He will have to face death in our place. That is the ultimate victory over this enemy, death. Now the Jews are observing the old thing. They are perplexed. But they don't know that what's about to happen is resurrection. But before we get there, let's pause that Jesus is not unmoved, friends. This should be a constant comfort for you. That as you sorrow through life as a believer, all these different expressions in few verses, he groans, he weeps, he cries. It is incredibly touching to think of our Savior in this way. First of all, he gives us a window to the fact that he was a man. Jesus Christ was, yes, God, but also a man. It's a testimony to the feelings 
of our saviors. He shares in all human pains, in all distresses. He enters all of your experiences. He knows how he feels. Also, it displays us the sympathy toward our sorrows. He feels for those he loves, his friends, his believers. He, in fact, Hebrews 5, 7 says, He offered up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears during his life on earth. Christ was acquainted with grief. In fact, he bore our griefs in our behalf. God shows love for us even in our death. More deeply, however, we don't just have tears, we will, but we have anger. This, this word, this verse testify for the anguish of the Son of God over the brokenness in this world. That this is because of sin, friends. The tragedy of sin. He wept because of the havoc that has been brought in the world by sin and death. That was a constant reminder to him that things ought not to be this way. That ultimately, God incarnate, however, has come to solve that problem. Has come to fight against death. And has come to overcome death through die on the cross and being risen from the dead. He's the conquering king over death. The old hymn I was listening to, we don't sing that very often, but he says this, He rends death iron chain. He breaks through sin and pain. He shatters hell's dark thrall. I follow him through all. It's the victory of our Savior. He has triumphed over the grave. There's a cosmic struggle, friends, between God, Satan, life, death, for the souls of men through death. That is the last enemy that hinders the complete establishment of the kingdom of God in a world that will be no more death. And we cannot. No one can take away this foe of death. Only the empty tomb. That is the ending of our text. Verse 39 to 44. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't waste a second. He calls for people to take away the stone. The same stone that he will he himself remove as he will be risen from the dead. But Martha once again protests. And she says, by this time he stinks. The corpse is decomposing. It's been already four days. Sorry, Jesus, you're too late for this. Uh, that tells you that her hope has still died and needs to be resurrected. Her faith needs to resurrect together with Lazarus. There's a scene in Lord of the Rings where in the second movie, The Two Towers, there's this battle and... Uh, the enemies, the orcs, and all the powers of darkness are coming through the elms deep, and there's no more hope. Um, I think s five days have passed, and, and the army is about to give up until there's the dawn that comes from the hill. And at that moment, Aragorn, who is fighting, remembers the word of Gandalf. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. Hope is reviving here. This is one of these moments that Jesus answers in a a rebuke to Martha, for, verse 40. Did I not say to you, you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha needs to allow Jesus' words to sink to the full implication. Again, this struggle between a dictionary type of faith and a faith that is practical to our specific circumstances. He takes away the storm, lifts up his eyes. Look at the prayer, verse 41 to 42. Prayer must accompany this greatest and last miracle. He goes to the Father before he does the miracle. Jesus already told us in chapter 5, verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life. And now the, the power of resurrection through the Father is given to the Son. 
I thank you, he says, that you have already heard me. Jesus is praying as if the Father already had answered the prayer. I know that you always hear me. Dr. Temple has this to say about Jesus. There was no moment of prayer for Jesus Christ. He lived prayer. And that's what he's doing here. But he says these words, this prayer, actually for an evangelistic purpose. He says, I said this because of the people standing by. Ultimately, he has to, to show them that if they believe in Christ, that you sent me, Father, through this miracle, through this answer prayer, you will be glorified. And now the last words of our text. Jesus, with a loud voice, cries, Lazarus, come out. There was a Puritan once said, if Jesus didn't call Lazarus by name, he would have emptied the whole cemetery at once. I mean, that's the truth. He had to call him by name. As the, as, as the word of the Logos that we saw in chapter 1, the word became flesh. Now that word has the power not just to create the universe, but to recreate us, to bring us out of dead. And there he goes. He who had died came out. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, this is a Ghostbuster movie scene. It's a shocking thing. This man dead with all the... There's a, something even more shocking is that this is not a ghost, however. This is a physical human being who had died. And he's coming back to life. Bound hand and foot with grave cloths. And this is a very interesting detail, by the way. If you compare to Jesus Christ, who will be risen in, in less than a week. In chapter 20, verse 6 and 7. The, the cloths are all wrapped, not around Jesus, but tied up in the corner. Why is that? Because Jesus will no, no longer need them. Unlike Lazarus, Lazarus. After the resurrection, he will go back to heaven. Now, everyone is shocked, obviously. They don't dare approach Lazarus and Jesus' commandments, lose him and let him go. John Stott says this, we live and die. This is the normal aspect of human life. But Christ died and lived. This is the most astounding miracle that we've seen so far. Raising the dead. Can you imagine? Something that Jesus Christ himself in his body will later experience. That the stone will be rolled away and the body will not be there anymore. Later he will conquer death and hell, winning for us our salvation. And yet he is still calling spiritually dead people that are watching the miracle to come to life by faith. That is, the, the, the power of this miracle is that it stretched the faith of all the observed people that are observing to their limits. That the impossible becomes possible. Why? Because of the perfect fellowship the father and the son have that the father answers the prayer immediately but friends there's the greatest miracle is is not just the physical resurrection it's the spiritual resurrection that grants god grants to us to be born again as you believe in christ like lazarus you pass from spiritual death to life that the power of sin is supernaturally eradicated from you in this process however even after you are raised, just like Lazarus, there are whole things to be taken away. Old cloths, old habits that cling to you. And, and Christ commands you to lose those. To remove the remaining sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lazarus, it is time to wake up. 
The greatness of this miracle, friends, cannot be possibly exaggerated. I mean, next time we'll see the, re the reaction of the crowds. But the resurrection of Jesus is all over the place in this story. That no grave can hold his body down. We sing this hymn usually during Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, raise your joy and triumph high. Sing ye heaven and earth reply. That's how the resurrection brings glory to God. Have you ever experienced, however, a situation like Mar Mary and Martha? The delays. Maybe someone you loved got sick. Or maybe you have a battle with fears or discouragement. Maybe you're still chained in sin. Maybe still chained in addiction and slavery. And you want to be made free. But you have no power within yourself to make yourself free. And you prayed. Please, Jesus, come. You watched your hope die. No change. You wonder why. Kept hoping. And uh, you start to lose. If you wouldn't have been here. If you could. If you should. This would not have happened. That would not have happened. Why is God waiting? Yeah, friends. God is still on time in our story. In fact, God through Jesus Christ. Sympathizes with our losses. God cares. Jesus wept. In fact, he He's about to resurrect people. The zeal of the Lord brought him victory even against the last greatest enemy of all, death. He is the resurrection. And that resurrection is right in front of you. And it's not something just future, but it's something for the here and now. He gives life, something to come to life. You first have to be dead, dead to yourself, dead to any other hope. So that when deliverance comes, you can only attribute to God. And that was the beginning of Jesus' words. That what, that's what brings glory to God. You thought that was dead. It comes alive. But do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ for this resurrection? For your soul? As this voice and the, of Christ to come out of the grave through the gospel awaken you. Even the most dead sinners... That is like that guy is never going to change. As this voice created in you the ability to even respond and come out of the graves. And experience that resurrection from the dead. God is glorified through that. Even through delays. Even through changes of plans. Those two more days or four days late or what have you. That at the end, friends, he will call us one by one. At the last trumpet. Like he did the year toward Lazarus. That the resurrection power will be witnessed by everyone, whether we believe or not. But the difference is, if you trust in Christ, it will be a glorious resurrection, a glorious body. But if you fail to believe in Christ, then you will be resurrected with a body that will be facing worse and worse tortures in hell. And so I, I, I plead with you to listen to the voice. To come out of that grave. Listen to Christ that says... He calls you by name as a dead man, dead in your sin, to come out and be 